0: Welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tannen.
1: And me, Chris Kitchener.
0: In this podcast, we explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. So this week, Chris, we've got another guest.
1: Another guest. guest. I... To be honest, I still can't believe people are willing to come on and talk to us. I think it's probably because they obviously haven't heard our podcast. We are very lucky to have another guest today. And I got permission just before we started to to give the story of how we met. And it's not that the story is embarrassing. It's the fact that we, I think it's fair to say, are both history nerds. We met on an activity. We both uh, did a tour of Arnhem. Spent five days, frankly, walking miles and miles and miles, but it was fantastic. And so actually, we had a lot of fun in that week and got to know each other. That was great. But actually, it was only later that I learned what our guest also was doing and the fact that she is a postgraduate in military history, which is always, obviously, that's kind of unsurprising going on this kind of tour, but also that she is a director in the NHS And she works in the area of mental health and social work. And so what was fascinating, recently, I heard her talk about psychology resilience in World War Two. And of course, immediately thought, what a perfect topic for the podcast, both because of the historical angle. and I think there's a really interesting story. We've been very lucky. We've had lots of history in a couple of our guests but also connecting it to her day to day world in the NHS, mental health and and social work as well. So I am very, very pleased to have Mary Brazier on the podcast. And Mary, I hope you don't mind. I introduce us with the joint moniker of History Nerds. Is that okay?
2: That's absolutely fine. I embrace my nerdishness.
1: So why don't we get straight in? And and I did a terrible job, despite having listened to an hour's talk about this. Can you do a better job of explaining the research you've been doing recently and maybe kick us off and tell us a bit more about that?
2: Yeah, thanks, Chris. So, as you mentioned, I'm a postgraduate military history student. So in my spare time for fun, because, as you also mentioned, I do have a very full time day job. I'm doing the the masters in Second World War societies and Holocaust with the University of Wolverhampton, and as part of my dissertation, or actually the, the subject of my dissertation, I'm looking at the role of psychology and psychiatry in RAF bomber command in the Second World War. So very much linked to my mental health day job, wanting to understand um, how we support people in their in their mental health and understand how we can support people to do difficult jobs. Bomber Command, that was a really, that was a new thing. And I think it. it when we, we look back with our 21st century eyes, we sometimes forget that it was a completely new way of fighting wars. You know, wars had been, they've been described as two dimensional. They were on land and they were on sea, but fighting wars in the air was incredibly new. So I was very interested in how on earth did they start? There was no doctrine in this. So how do you know who you're looking for? How do you select the men? And we are, in this case, talking about men to do these roles. And how do we make them doable? How do we know when people are coping and when they're not coping? And what do we do about that? So I was really interested to see, did they even think about this stuff? So I've spent a lot of time, possibly too much time, but I do love it there at the National Archives in Kew, looking for the the primary um evidence, the records.
1: So what conversations were had. And actually it's been a gold mine. I mean, this is maybe a good time to sort of pause and think what do we know about Bomber crews in the RAF? And unfortunately, given how old I am, there's a lot of a lower low. There's some people with stiff, sort of stiff upper lips and British accents. And maybe that sense of sort of stiff upper lip, it doesn't occur to me that there is actually a, a thoughtful approach to how you might bring people on in fact you one might imagine you would take anyone who wants to be a bomber pilot or a fighter pilot sounds like that's not true though i think one of the things that interested
2: me and and especially i'm looking at it and to a certain extent we all are when we're having this conversation we're looking at this through our 21st century eyes through our understanding of trauma even people who don't work within mental health understand that there is a thing called trauma There's something called post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD is something that we're all used to hearing, even if we don't really know what it means and what the diagnostic criteria are. We know it's a thing. And what we have to remind ourselves is at the time they didn't, there was no understanding that people react to trauma and need support to deal with trauma the assumptions were very much that people's ability to cope or not cope with whatever it was they were facing was predetermined by their personalities. Therefore, the focus was on selecting the right people. So there was no understanding of trauma being a key factor, certainly at the beginning. And when I'm talking about the beginning, I'm not talking about 1939, I'm talking about 1934 to 1936, which was when these conversations were starting to happen. And they weren't then thinking about mental health as such. So psychologists, were getting very involved, but not thinking about mental health. They were thinking about the conditions in which the men would be flying. So how do we make the conditions amenable to people being able to do these missions? So what they were thinking about was noise in the aircraft, comfort in the cockpit. So there was a lot of psychological testing that was going on to see how to deal with and prevent fatigue. They weren't thinking about trauma and actual combat circumstances they were thinking about well we'll need to fly over enemy territory they kind of knew who the enemy was going to be and where that might be and the distances we were talking about i've got some really interesting and when i say interesting remember what chris said about us being nerds interesting in relation to lots of charts of different aircraft and relative comfort and noise and fatigue of people so when They they were doing these testing missions in 1936, 1937, and they were testing crews as they came back. They were going into barrages of psychological testing to see how fatigued the, the air crews were. So they were looking at the subjective and objective experiences. So not just how tired are you? They were then subjecting them to these psychological tests to see objectively how fatigued they were. And that was the focus for a long time.
0: It's fascinating that they're focusing on the the human factors of the operating environment and not even considering the consequences of the mission on the the mental health of the crews. And I think we'll we'll explore that in more detail in a moment. But but on that human factors front, was that all about recruiting the right people, or were they also then looking at how they are just training and how they adjust crew composition or any of those things? to mitigate some of those human factors?
2: In in terms of what I've been able to find, they're looking at crew selection, they're looking at who are we looking for. And there were some bizarre things coming up. Chris has made reference to the talk I gave a couple of weeks ago. I gave quite a flippant example, but I think it's a really good example. They were making this up as they went along. And we have to remember this. This wasn't known stuff. They weren't basing this on research that was already in existence and well established they were making this up as they went along there was no doctrine in terms of how to do the war fighting from the air and there was no evidence base as to who they were looking for to do these roles so they were they were starting with a blank sheet of paper and some of the things that we find in the records are frankly nonsense but you have to remember that it's nonsense from a 21st century lens not a 1930s lens so one of the examples is that they were finding, and this is, they were finding that the older crew members, and when we're talking about older, we're talking mid-twenties rather than late teens. So it's all relative. But these were men who were married, possibly have children as well. And there was a reference in one of the reports to the fact that it was these crew members who were exhibiting more signs of stress. And there was a discussion about why that might be. And one of the psychologists made reference to the fact that it was because weak-willed men were more likely to have been inveigled into the institution of marriage. So therefore, it's the men who can't cope that end up
1: being married. I do have the urge to make a flippant comment. And I'm thinking there is no flippant comment that doesn't in some way get me in a lot of trouble with someone, including myself. But so, so presumably this was considered cutting edge science. I mean, to your point, through the lens of the time, this had not been done before. Do you get the sense that everyone was on board and felt this was a valuable, important way of contributing to a future war effort, or did you get the sense that, to some degree, it was a fringe thing that some oddballs were doing, and you know, a bit of British stiff upper lip and would all be good?
2: A bit of both, I think, and it, it's one of my research questions that I haven't answered yet, and and that might be a PhD at some point in the future, because it's a, certainly a lot more than a master's dissertation, but. There is something about. So this was a cabinet committee. This was a subcommittee of of the War Cabinet. So it was it was certainly formalised. It it was happening under that aegis. It, and it was it wasn't just the RAF, the Air Ministry. It was the Navy and the Admiralty, and it was the Army as well. So it was it was across all the the three branches. And the psychologists, psychiatrists asking a number of questions. There's some really interesting stuff to do with the army, which if we have time, I'll, I'll come to as well, because it's certainly interesting from a resilience perspective. One of the questions I've got is there's this huge amount of work going on. And there were some key people doing this work and a huge amount. Of, I have a whole stack of paper on the floor, which doesn't work very well on a podcast. But just imagine a huge stack of paper on the floor of, of all the photocopying I've, I've done from the archives, from all these cabinet minutes. And loads and loads of of sort of huge leather bound folders with all these cabinet minutes in from the duration of the war. And the psychologists and psychiatrists are really interested in doing this research. Funnily enough, they're all academics who want to publish. And there's a lot of things being published as well in journals, as well as through the cabinet committees. a lot of papers being written. And because there's funding for research and academics always love the opportunity to get their research funded and one of the other interesting things a bit of a, a sort of side comment is that towards the end of the war they're kind of well can we keep this committee going and can I can I have some research grant money to continue doing this and the government are kind of saying yeah no no we've done that you know we've finished that we're moving on to this now and the these um these academics who've had their research funded and interest in their research for for the last sort of five six years are all of a sudden trying to continue what they're doing into peacetime and there's a bit of discussion about whether there's any room for those discussions uh, that work in peacetime so going back to your question about were they listened to I think that is one of the questions I'm I'm looking to answer is there's all this work going on there's all this evidence base being produced from pretty much nothing and what what impact did it have
1: and I haven't answered that yet because I'm not sure that it did I mean it's you know obviously the point of this podcast is to talk about how we apply some of these things to modern leadership but I even at this stage I can't help making that connection where even today, if you said to people, we should think about mental health, we should think about resilience, we should think about the impact of stress. And I suspect there, there's an equal question which says, do people take that seriously or not seriously? I think we take it a lot more seriously. I suspect the military aspect helps us. But as with um, when we talked to Ian Peck a couple of weeks ago about the role of chaplains, one of the sort of conclusions we came was, In the the Second World War, there was already a network of pastoral care for people, which arguably we have lost today. And again, in the same way, it's not clear that we've quite got to grips with how we deal with these things. How do you measure stress? So maybe you can talk about because I'm I'm cheating because I do know a little bit about some of the research you've done. I thought it was fascinating. So what what were some of the conclusions they came to and perhaps even later in the war about who had stressful jobs and why they were stressful? Well, I think
2: I'll I'll start, if I may, with thinking about what was driving the research. So one of the things I have talked about and will be exploring a little bit in, in my work is that this wasn't driven by any kind of principle of benevolence, of interest in well-being in and of itself. It was an interest in efficiency. So the most valuable resource that, The RAF have got are the trained pilots and the bomber crews you know you can replace an aircraft more easily than you can replace the crews so what we need to do is to get the conditions in place to make sure the crews can do the job for for longer prevent breakdown so it's about efficient use of resources which kind of comes back to to resilience and and I suppose it's how you apply that to business you know, you want to do the right thing on a human level. You're interested in the well-being of your of your staff. But ultimately, the driver is you want your organization to be efficient and effective.
1: This is something I have found over a number of episodes that I hadn't quite come to a clear view, which I do now, which is there is a moral imperative often around these things. And we've talked about diversity, a whole host of other things. There's a moral imperative and there's a business imperative. And what's really interesting is how often those two things overlap one another. So the idea that you would say, oh, well, stiff upper lip, don't care whether you think it's the right thing for people that that that's a good reason to have it. But even if you don't believe in that, you should believe in the fact the people you hire, whether they're in the military in the Second World War or the people in your team today are your most Expensive and valuable resource, and therefore, why wouldn't you protect them? You know, we put fire extinguishers in offices not because we're bleeding hearts, because we don't want our people to die. That's a bad thing. So I, I'm feeling much more confident to say moral, good reason, but business. And it's interesting that the RAF had come to that as well. What was there a sense of moral in there as well, or was it literally? all we're going to talk about in our reports and all that we're going to talk about is human capital.
2: In the official reports at a strategic and and governmental level, what you're seeing is the latter. At an individual level, yes, there's some degree of, I I keep returning to the, the term benevolence is how I'm framing it. So, and again, it's, Absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. Was there kind of a, a moral, ethical desire to do the right thing because it's the right thing? Possibly at an individual level, does that come across in the official records?
0: Not so much. We've talked on this podcast before about Adair's principles of or, or leadership model. So uh, the balancing of teams, tasks, and individual. And it strikes me that in a in a time of existential crisis global war it's okay to prioritise the task over the individuals when when looking at things from a macro level so i think we can probably sort of have a little bit of empathy for for a, a government and a, and a military that's that's trying to you know save the country but it's interesting that you talk about the the fact that they're concentrating on the the environmental conditions the human factors and it strikes me that they're they're focusing very much on the individual and the task, but not so much on the team. And part of that is it's sort of reflected in the they're not looking at compounding issues of people coming back from doing missions that have quite negative impacts, both both for the enemy and for the crew, um, and not not really taking into account the, the compounding effects of multiple missions. Do you think that is, that is that a fair assessment?
2: In terms of the emerging understanding and the emerging evidence base towards you know moving from sort of 42, 43, that's starting to come through because one of the, the areas I've been exploring is how do they know how many missions is enough? So one of the things they were exploring is, and, and this was a question I have for my, again, going back to my nerdishness in this area. I, I do love a war film and, and there's a few war films where they're talking about the last mission and he's got this many missions. You know, you're thinking of, of of Memphis Belle, for example, although clearly that's American. But where they're clearly talking about there's a fine number of missions so I had a question about, well, how on earth did they reach that number? How did they decide that there should be a number? And, and how did they decide what that number was? And did it was that consistent across different air forces? And the answer is yes. But one of the things that's interesting from an RAF perspective is that they were also talking about, should there be? And if there is one, what is it? How do we measure it? And at what point do we take people off the line? Or the equivalent, whatever the equivalent term is for the for an RAF perspective. But there was so there's a bit of backwards and back and forth between the the clinicians doing the the evaluation and station commanders and station medical officers. And there's one station commander whose response was he was a bit of an outlier because most station commanders were in agreement that we need to set a limit, not only in terms of Physically, there's only so much that these men can do, but there needs to be an end in sight, that yeah. people need to know what they're aiming for. Um, they can't go on forever. And similarly to, and this is changing the subject somewhat, but similarly to, I mean, think of the psychological impact on prisoners of war part of the the challenge that they had was they weren't serving a defined sentence. They didn't have an end release date in mind. They didn't know how long they would be in prison for. But that's that's another rabbit hole um we can look at later
0: maybe. I, I think that's um, a really interesting point though because I think I think that that is a general principle that applies to, to any team where whether that's you know in, in combat in the Second World War or whether that you know, working people hard in in a commercial company today. If people don't have an end end in sight, an objective they're aiming to get to, then it's incredibly difficult to push yourself beyond what's comfortable. So, if you want to get people to to work beyond what is a routine, beyond what is comfortable, then they need to know why they're working what they're working for but they also need to know when it's going to end
1: i I mean i first of all i think that's true but there's i this is a question i don't know the answer to one of the things that in my world is so in software which i've always found challenging is that it's a never-ending world yeah there is there is no conclusion the moment you've finished building some software you're on to building. so this idea of How long is it going to take and how do you get there can be highly valuable. Now, I think one of the questions I've got is when you have that, does that elicit more performance? So bringing it back to the the Second World War example, I wonder, is there a sense that if we say there are 20 missions that you have to fly, does that actually increase performance because people are more focused? And if you don't have a limit, people say, well, I'm gonna settle back into a lower level of performance. A crazy question, which is if you set a target, you get more out of people than if you have an underlying ongoing thing. Was there any sense of that? Did they get a sense of, did they measure performance of air crews? How did they do that? Yes, they did.
2: Don't ask me how. Someone asked me how at the talk a couple of weeks ago and I had to say, I don't know. But one of the things they were describing, and I know I'm waving my hands around, which, again, is is great podcasting. But what they were describing was a performance curve and they were saying, at what point do we take men out of operational flying duties? Do we wait until they're coming down the other side of the curve? And what they decided was, no, we take people off operational duties when they're at the peak of the curve before started, their performance is started to deteriorate. Again, I will have to find out, and it is on my to-do list to find out how they measured the performance
1: and how they gathered the data for the curve. I think this is, and I know we sort of bounce around on things like resilience. I think that's a really, really important statement. I have worked in teams under enormous stress. And typically in business, when you're under enormous stress, the ability to stop is dictated by outside forces. The project is going to take a year. And so therefore we will do this until the year is up. What's interesting, what you're saying is the R.E.F. had a sense of, if you keep doing that, if you keep applying stress, at some point the performance will fall off. I think that's that's what you were saying. Hmm. And therefore they were trying to predict When that performance would fall off and as it were remove people from that stress to give them time to recover what a fascinating idea name me an example in business where someone says blogs has been working on this project it's been incredibly stressful we need to take him off this project to give him time to recover i have never heard anyone say that it is i mean typically stress is short-lived but when that stress continues over a long period I don't think I've ever heard businesses think about that and take it into account.
0: I've only ever heard of it when somebody signed off with sick leave, which means they've gone too far.
1: But, and even then it's just a conversation saying blogs is is not well. Mm. And everyone says that's terrible. And no one ever says, well, wait a minute. Blogs being ill is very bad. If he's ill, do we have other people and what to do? That's a, I, I have, I have not thought about that. And by the way, I can imagine organisations would hate that idea. So what you're telling me is we have a fixed capacity to deliver work and some crazy person wants me to take that capacity away because a thing that hasn't happened might happen.
0: But it's it's quite common in the military. So and, and, And there's a counter argument to it, which I'll come on to. So in the military, it is pretty typical to go on a defined length operational tour and during that tour, at some point, you have a uh, a defined length amount of rest and recuperation, R&R. And so there's a management burden of how do you manage everybody's R&R so that you maintain the operational capability of the team throughout that. So not only are you having to manage a sort of spreadsheet of people's time, but you've got key individuals in there. So you've got key leaders, experienced people, inexperienced people, people with specific skills, machine gunners, medics, whatever it is. And, of course, it will depend on the function of the unit. And they've all got to go and leave at some point, and they all come to an end of the tour at some point. And there's two ways of doing this. You can have a rolling process, so individuals' end of tour is at some point, and then it's continually changing over people, but but slowly. Or you can have units that deploy and then you have a relief in place of another unit and both have their advantages and disadvantages. But one of the things I would say is a, is a disadvantage of having a defined tour length is the dislocation of taking experience off the line.
1: Well, I mean, but I think I think this goes back to the point, which is in my experiences, businesses don't feel they have the luxury to take people in inverted commas off the line. Mary sort of dipping into your, your, your day life, the NHS strikes me as that kind of organization where stress is enormous. Is there a, a, a structural process by which there is the equivalent of you've done 20 tours or you have reached your, your, your peak of effectiveness We will now put you somewhere else. And by the way, I'm dreading the answer because I suspect it's no, given what I know of the NHS. But is there anything? Is that even discussed in the NHS? Not as such. Um, We have,
2: you know, compared to the private sector, probably very generous annual leave allowances. So there is an expectation that you plan and use your annual leave properly across the year. Sick leave are our sick pay, again compared to the, the private sector is probably very generous. There is an expectation that if you're too unwell to come to work, then you shouldn't be at work. We haven't got to worry about people coming to work because they won't get paid otherwise. Um, but we also look at things like, Staff turnover, staff sickness levels as an indication of what's going on in a service, how well the service, the organisation as a whole is functioning. One of our biggest challenges in the NHS, this isn't just my organisation, but in the NHS as a whole, is not only recruitment, but retention. So we can't, the staff aren't out there. Don't get me started on why and NHS workforce planning or the lack thereof, but also how do you keep the staff? So high levels of staff turnover, which is people leaving because. You know, you can always get another job somewhere else, doing what you do already, or doing something different is another matter. But you know, you can always find work somewhere. So, so even people leaving and either joining a different team in the same organization or going to a different organization just to do work in a different environment. So high high staff turnover is a, a indication that there's there's something going on. There's there's problematic. These
1: are all lagging indicators, though.
0: Yeah, I was going to mm-hmm. say. Bomber crews exactly. in the Second World War couldn't go and get a job somewhere else. Yeah. So the only choice they had was to keep going until they couldn't, because they were of a nervous disposition, or however it was described in the 1930s, 1940s. But they didn't have the choice. In In the modern workplace, people do. They can mm. you know, vote with their feet. They can go and work somewhere else. So it is high turnover... You know, exacerbated by the fact that people are having to work really hard, they're not getting the breaks that they need. And therefore, is this a catch 22 situation where people leaving people makes leave, it great?
1: I, I think it's true. A situation
0: that managers find it difficult to give people time off, and therefore we end up with a situation where the, the stress levels increase and grow.
1: Well, completely. Absolutely. That- and
2: there's almost a tension there between interests of the individual and we're very much thinking about work-life balance and flexible working opportunities and really you know giving those priority if people request them and the needs of the service and sometimes the two aren't in sync so what comes first and it's really difficult as a manager to say i understand that that individual who's a key member of my team is asking for this to make their life easier better Um, for their own well-being but at the same time i can't give that to everyone and i've got a service to deliver patients to treat um shifts to cover so i think there's an there's an inherent tension there between the two sometimes
0: we need to take a short break now we'll be right back
1: I wonder, that's why I love this doing this podcast, because I'd never considered this, which is if you could walk around with a big screen on the top of your head that showed where you were on your performance curve, so everyone could see it, I wonder whether that would lead to very different behaviours. In other words, managers would walk around and say, blogs is at 85%, okay, good. Kitchener's at 98%. We have to keep a close eye on him. Gareth is at 105 We need to pull him out. In other words, again, it's not out of some moral, we want to be nice to people. It is literally, as we have said, people leaving as an example of this sort of symptom is very bad. So I think if you, if it was clear, if it was visible, mm-hmm. like the indicator in a tank of petrol, then I suspect we would have a very different perspective in the world of business because it would be blindingly obvious. I can take someone out, put yeah. them back in a month, and they'll be good. I think the problem, which I guess takes us to the sort of back to the story, is you can't see this stuff. It, they're all lagging indicators. And so the RAF was attempting to say, rather than waiting for a lagging indicator, someone saying, I'm not getting into the aeroplane, how can we detect? So maybe maybe this is a good segue back to you, Mary, to say, so what did they, What? how did they evolve those ideas of stress and when people would break and going back to your idea, how did they evolve those ideas? It's, It's a really good question because
2: it's also bleeding obvious. That when they were doing this work in the late 30s, no one was being shot at because you, you don't really test things by using real bullets and shooting at them. And Not allowed, I've heard. Health and safety gone mad. No, it doesn't go down very well. Even in the 30s, that was, that was kind of frowned upon. So when they were looking at the factors that were influencing fatigue, they were looking at things like comfort and noise and... You know the the heaviness of the controls of the aircraft and they're really thinking about that there was even this sort of test cockpit called the Cambridge cockpit both Oxford and Cambridge were involved I tried to see if I could work out some kind of boat race analogy but unfortunately not but there were both both universities where their academics were very much involved in this work so they were very much looking at the physical environment and it was almost kind of then only when the the combat starts they're thinking oh yeah maybe that might have an impact as well that you, you can't test that out beforehand <laughs> so when you're i'm looking at the data that's coming out of this work in kind of 36 37 38 it's not involving being shot at and how stressful it is to be dropping bombs over enemy territory and and dealing with flak and an enemy aircraft um it was it was dealing with the stuff that was within our control in peacetime. But when you're starting to look at the, the evidence that's emerging during uh, combat from combat missions, they were looking at, well, which roles within a bomber crew are reporting higher levels of stress. And so they were looking at the different roles. Don't ask me which aircraft because different aircraft have, have different, have different roles, but your your bog standard bomber crew and, and the, the role within the crew that was that suffers more from stress or was reported to suffer more from stress was the air gunner so pilots have a job to do the whole time plus the responsibility as to co-pilots navigators the radio operators again they've all got a job for the duration of the mission the air gunners have from the time they're flying over the the home territories there's not a lot to do except to think about the fact that you're going to be shot at um, as soon as you get over enemy territory Then you've got however long duration of being shot at and of shooting other people, and then your imminent doom, maybe, and particularly with some aircraft, um, the enemy aircraft know where the air gunners are sighted, so that's a target um, for their um, guns as well. And then when you're flying home again, you're like, oh, my God, how am I going to get on this aircraft? I've survived this time. Am I going to survive the next time? So you've got the time to reflect and focus and think and dwell and ruminate on your imminent doom. Whereas your colleagues who've got a job to do all the time, they haven't got as much time to dwell on those factors. So there was some consideration given to the the actual psychological impact then of the experiences. So that's when what we now refer to as trauma started to be understood a little bit.
0: Um, I, I suspect also with air gunners in in some of the aircraft they were quite isolated in comparison mm. to the rest of the crew, and I yeah. suppose that probably exacerbated that feeling of being vulnerable, especially if you've got very little to do. But I wonder wonder if the bomb aimers as well. Some of the larger aircraft the bomb aimer was separate to navigator, uh, and so a job that again only only going to be done whilst over enemy territory for a very short period of time. But also, in terms of delivery of effects, probably one of the most decisive of the jobs.
1: I think it is fascinating, this idea that there are different levels of stress and different levels of trauma. My, My aha moment five minutes ago was that we don't think about how stress and trauma impact our work. I think the NHS and the military are probably two outliers where they understand a bit of this. But if you said, I run a software business, let's think about the trauma and stress we bring. I I think, it, particularly in today's climate, there'd be a Daily Mail headline, which would include the word woke, although to be fair, everything is woke in the Daily Mail, including HS2 apparently. I thought that was quite clever, but anyway. The idea that you could look at different roles mm. and say how connected are they to a team, how focused are they? Yeah I, I I do think we're missing a trick. I suspect the trauma that you experience in the military and particularly for World War II air crews, second World War II air crews is more obvious and more extreme. But actually, I would argue the stress and the trauma over a period of time in jobs in the business world can actually be more insidious because it's not as visible. It's not like you're going to say, I can't get in the aircraft this morning or I can't sit at my desk. Yeah. Actually, the more insidious is the productivity decreases and people stop being useful to you or leave. It's another one of these things. Have we missed a trick? but wouldn't there be value in being purely selfish making a more effective team by understanding and measuring this we we talk about taking an hour for lunchtime no problem we talk about people taking holidays no problem we never talk about how we measure stress
2: yeah sorry,
1: to... lunch lunch break Yes. I <laughs> sorry what i meant was um doing meetings while <laughs> eating a sandwich i think that is <laughs> that, my... that's
0: the one yeah When you talk about dealing with these things, the default is to give people more time and to give people more comfort. Uh, And that was clearly the the sort of instinctive thoughts of the psychologists pre-war in the 1930s. But from my experience in Afghanistan, the experiences of gunners in the aircraft having time to think about the problems, having time to think about the danger is what exacerbates some of that trauma. It resonates exactly with not having things to do. And giving people comfort when they're in a situation that is not comfortable, combat, again, can sometimes be a dislocating effect. Um, and, and from my experience, and, and people listening who've who've done recent combat tours will, will resonate with this. The idea of having access to a burger king or a pizza hut whilst being in a war zone so one minute you're out on patrol worrying about where you're going to uh, put your feet in terms of maybe stepping on a landmine or a pressure plate of an IED worrying about coming under attack worrying about ambushes worrying about what you're going to do having to deal with those situations as they rise and then an hour later, finding yourself surrounded by people who haven't been out of the wire, who are wandering back from Pizza Hut or Starbucks, or the the kind of comforts from home is really dislocating. I think there's been some studies about this in in Vietnam, because Vietnam was probably the first of the operations where the attempt to bring sort of home creature comforts forward to, to sort of increase morale was actually recognised as having a detrimental effect That's on so combat effectiveness. And, and personally, yeah. having having managed teams in combat, the, the stress of the dislocation of people going back on R&R and then having to come back into a combat zone, with all of the trauma that is induced by being in the safety of home, but knowing the rest of your team is still there. The dislocation that comes from flying into somewhere to find people who don't understand what it's like outside the wire, although they're in theatre, they've you know they're serving in uniform is is quite difficult to to square. And then that being idle and there were several times on on my first combat tour where helicopters broke down or were prioritised for something else or there was a mass casualty incident and, and everybody was locked down for several hours and we found ourselves in a position where there was nothing to do and we were in you know, somebody else's forward operating base or somewhere else, somewhere else in theatre so we couldn't just get on with those jobs of keeping things going and so you, you end up sitting around and that's when you start reflecting on what you're doing and that's where... Where you've pushed stuff to the back of your mind about the realities of the danger, start creeping forward. And I think there's an interesting point here about isolation, the comfort, and the not being busy, which is probably counterintuitive. Yeah. I mean, actually, they're thinking it, about trauma.
1: It shows there doesn't seem to be a clear answer, whichever way you go. But, Mary, how did bomber crews reach their sort of goal of this many missions? What did the Air Force do to, as it were, get them back to the fighting order?
2: They sent them to the operational training units, which, if you know anything about operational training units for, for Bomber Command, is not exactly R&R, because the, the casualty rate in training people to fly bombers was actually really high. But it's the risk wasn't relating to combat. It's relating to training people to fly
1: huge aircraft. So they're sent to operational uh, training units. Sounds good. They're busy. They're not being shot at. They're still flying. How did they know how long to keep them in operational training units? But
2: I think it was very much they decided that what would be most fair was consistent measures. Obviously, there might be individuals who needed slightly different treatment, but otherwise the crews as a whole were these are the number of missions you do because there was a big discussion about should we measure it by number of missions or number of hours but then the crews that are flying the longer missions do fewer missions than those who are flying shorter but so there was a big discussion about that and they ended up um, agreeing the number of missions so there was a big discussion about how do we make this fair and how do we do the measuring and I just want to pick up what you were saying earlier about the disconnect between going into combat and coming home coming back to a familiar environment, which was particularly what interested me in seeing how Bomber Command managed this. Because these were guys going into combat over enemy territory and coming home and sleeping in their own beds, in barracks or in in the officer's mess, but they were still coming back to their own beds. These aren't people who who are kipping under their tanks in the combat zone and in unfamiliar territory and in that headset. And then they're able to at points go on leave and be home and keep the two very separate. These are within the space of 24 hours, they're waking up in their own bed. They're having their bacon and eggs as we've all seen in Dam busters and know that only the people doing operations get their bacon and eggs and the rest get their bread and jam. And then they're going off doing their combat mission. They may or may not come back from it. And then they come back and are they going to come back next time? And it, and it is that real disconnect between the two. And how do you get into each headspace of we're at home now in our own beds and we can go and leave this weekend and see our families, but we're still flying night missions over Germany. How do you manage that headspace in the same way that um, there was a lot of research into uh, British Army personnel serving in Northern Ireland? And the impact that that had compared to serving in, if I can use the term, foreign nations that are that are unfamiliar because there's so much about Northern Ireland with just the brand names, just the language. Everything's very familiar. That then had an impact with people coming home. And in terms of if we're thinking about symptoms we now understand as PTSD, that was more of an issue for those who'd served in Northern Ireland than those who'd served elsewhere.
0: Yeah, and of course, this is a this is a problem that's coming back to us now as we're starting to see more and more remote uh, remote systems. So, remotely piloted aircraft. The Royal Air Force currently flies the the Reaper, the MQ9 Reaper, but effectively these are what we commonly refer to as drones, but they are piloted by aircrew, but they're just in a container thousands of miles away on their home base. So this is a this is a problem we've come back to, uh, and the RAF is having to look at what the impacts are of you know flying a twelve hour mission over Syria, Iraq, or wherever it is, uh, and then going home to your wife and kids Well, all you, night. you
1: when you when you said the word remote, I actually thought you were going to say remote working because get, going back to business stress, I suspect this is one of the elements of remote working which is actually invisible and detrimentally. If you have a stressful workload, when you close your laptop, nothing changes. There's no delineation between stress. Yeah. People say, oh, well, you know, you should go out for a walk or you should have a desk somewhere else in a home office. But I wonder whether there's, again, this hidden cost, which says, how do you how do you separate work and stress from home? Not out of some, you know, isn't it nice that you get to have a nice evening at home? But it's like, no, no. Yeah. By not having that delineation, the stress doesn't know when to stop, or you you don't know when to
2: switch between these two things. Absolutely, and, and I think that that's a significant issue. We don't have the thinking time. I mean, I I, I have uh, moved trusts in the last year and a half. I now work for for a, an NHS trust that covers East London and and some of the counties in uh, in the local authority areas in in Luton and Bedfordshire and I work from home quite a bit and we do a lot of work on ms teams our trust headquarters is in the city of london it's in it's in aldgate that's where i see my colleagues and my peers and i really value the time there i've been there this week but similarly to to where i speak this is where i do my most of my work in my study at home one of the things that, that we've noticed is that the less experienced junior staff want to be in the office. And that's that's partly because they, they value their colleagues around them. They need to seek guidance. They need to have some reflection. They, they're looking for some experience and, and support. But also they are the staff who are less likely to have a home environment where they can have a separate office. And I can think back to lockdown when I was running online meetings and some of the staff in the meetings were sitting on their beds. That's not a positive working environment when you're having really difficult, complex, challenging conversations about patient care. And even if we are in an office with colleagues, when we're doing a lot of online meetings, we can be in an office And some of some of the meetings we're having, they're in colleagues who are in an open plan office environment, but they're not speaking to each other. We're all communicating through teams with headsets on and then you're clicking from one meeting straight into the other. It's not that unusual, certainly for me to have a day's diary where I've got absolutely back to back MS Teams meetings. So there's no time to reflect on the discussions you've just had. Um, and think about the meeting and the conversation you're about to have. You are clicking in and out. Um, when are you actually doing, not only doing the doing, but doing the thinking? It is really important when we're thinking about the impact of not having that thinking and that reflection time. My hour and a half commute was exhausting, but in that time I would listen to audiobooks, I would listen to the radio, and you're switching off. And by the time you get home, you're in a different headspace. And at the moment, we don't have that when
1: you're working at home actually it's so interesting you know you walk into this podcast thinking you're going to talk about second world war history but we uncover these things your point about thinking time i think is actually really 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 important so there is the aspect of stress reduction about winding down about separation of work and home but even if you purely keep it to work I suspect many people listening to this will will have been nodding when you said back-to-back. In fact, literally, I tomorrow have back-to-back meetings from 9 a.m. to 5.30 tomorrow with, without any break. So not only would I have to eat lunch during a meeting, I don't have time to get the lunch, but the thinking time is so important. It implies that we're back in the early 1900s where our job is to stand in front of a machine and press a button 300 times. If that's the case, you don't need thinking time, you just need to press the button 300 times. But each and every one of us, who's either the three of us on this episode or people listening, the reason why we are employed and often in positions of leadership is to think about things. That's so important, is really important, not just to sort of unwind, but also as, and this is going to sound particularly hippie, we are creatives. It's not that we do creative jobs, but as leaders, that requires creativity and thought. It is about this mental health. It is about resilience and stress, but more importantly, it is about as a leader, how do I create the most effective team that comes up with the best decisions, creates the most optimum output in a sustainable way?
0: Yeah, I think this has been a, another fascinating episode where we've linked you know, what, what seemingly are disparate subjects, starting with bomber command in the Second World War and just before the Second World War, and looking at how they focus efficiency in team and personnel management for the achievement of operations, all the way through to how does remote working affect our ability to have downtime. There are clear strands that that relate. I talked about the idling and the downtime creating a, a problem in that. That's when you start to reflect on the danger. But what's really important is giving individuals downtime. So where I saw that create problems was where we were left on a base with nothing to do for five or six hours, waiting for a helicopter. Not the giving guys an hour to go to the gym, managing and monitoring people's sleep, giving people time to go and write the letters home or to do their washing. You know, the really basic things allow people to read a book for an hour. These things are how you keep teams going in high pressure situations for long periods of time. So I think for me, this, once again, it comes down to that combination of leadership at every level of command, people recognising that if you have some sort of authority over other people's time, other people's duties, you are in a leadership position, whether you're very, very junior or very, very senior. And so actively managing that, whether you're managing flight crews for active operations in the Air Force or whether you're managing NHS staff or whether you're managing people in in software development, active management, where you're having an awareness of, what high stress activities are, having some clear metrics, some ways of measuring performance against that. In the military, we have some really, really useful things. We we measure, so you were talking about having, you know, a screen on everybody's head that would tell them where they are, 85%, 90%, whatever. But we have that. We don't personally display it, but there is a, a management board in every unit that says how many nights out of bed that person's had in the last 365 days.
1: Interesting. How many
0: days they've had away from their family, how many days they've had on operations, how many days they've had in field conditions. And then there is a chain of command throughout the unit where it is locally managed down to teams of two, three, four people, all the way up to the commanding officer of the unit managing 600 people. But I think clearly defined goals and objectives. So if you're operating in a war zone and you don't know when the war's gonna end, you're operating in the NHS, the challenge is never going to end mm. having individual goals and objectives to allow people to know when to run hot and when to run cold rather than always running hot because there's always going to be patients or there's always going to be enemy action. going back to that final point yeah, reflection and downtime in whatever capacity is really really important and i think this is one of the really difficult challenges of of the modern era is that we're always at the end of our phones, emails, you know, messages and stuff. Um, And so it sounds trite, but those ideas of, if you work from home, going for a walk before and after work kind of gives you that mental break. Turning your phone off, those little things are, are how you can help yourself. But of course, this is a leadership challenge. And so having the discipline to not send emails, having the discipline to... Actively manage when people are working.
2: It's so difficult. It is really hard. And I it's it's more common. I don't know if it's common in business, but it's become more common. I certainly have it as part of my email sign-off that if I'm sending emails out of working hours, that doesn't mean I expect a response. Yeah. Um, I'm sending it because it's convenient for me. I don't expect you to be responding to it. I don't expect you to be checking them. And there's something about personal control. So what control we have over over our lives over our working lives personal interactions as well I often refer to them as sort of the kitchen conversations you have when you're you're making a drink in in the 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 office kitchen the staff kitchen and that's when you have some really useful interactions with people you don't build relationships you can maintain relationships to a degree through these Um, virtual means, but it's really difficult to build relationships on a human level if you're not having actual face-to-face interactions. So there's something about how are we balancing that, how are we having the conversations, and how are we involving our staff and our colleagues in decisions that affect how services are going to be developed. So it's back to that television screen on people's heads people aren't going to tell you until they're pretty much on their knees so if you're not proactive with saying how are you no really how are you how are you managing what can I do and it's about being reflective with that so we've I in my previous organization I was part of What was called post incident psychological support. So, and the incident could be anything. It could have been an incident involving a patient and a poor outcome for a patient, or it could be a team that was under particular stress. And it was about going out and saying, "Okay, let's talk about this. How is everyone?" And pulling people in, but people might not want to talk. They might not engage verbally, but they could be present. It was voluntary; people didn't have to attend, but it was an opportunity for reflection. And so some safe space. So there's something similar in in some environments. You may be familiar with something called trim, which is a similar kind of debriefing after incidents.
0: But I think that that's a really important point. And earlier you said about you know not having top down leadership and allowing people to be proactive. But I think it is worth making the point that, like you say, people will answer the question based on what they think that person wants to hear. And if you don't top-down manage things like leave and enforce leave, people will put their own physical well-being, mental well-being uh, behind being seen to be present and being seen to be active.
1: This this conversation has left me, don't take do this the wrong way, Mary, unsatisfied. The reason why I say this is unsatisfying is these all feel like really blunt tools they feel like saying we know there is stress we know people generically need to manage that and so we are going to have this sort of scattergun effect of things to, to you know reduce the risk the unsatisfying thing is this lack of the screen above your head on where you are that if we could know more and when you talked about what the military does today where they have a I thought that was—I've never heard that before—and I thought that was brilliant. Which is, how do we attempt begin to attempt to measure
0: yeah.
1: levels of stress? Now, it, again, even that feels like a bit like well, you know, tail gunners are more stressful, but nevertheless, that's I—I'm—I'm I'm left wanting to go and think about it. Which is, how do you find the leading indicators? Yeah, because if you could, if you could, li- I mean, this is an ideal if you could literally match how you treat people based on where they are on that curve, you would have happier, healthier, more efficient, more effective. I think we've all suffered stress over time. We've all felt our effectiveness wax and wane. There is a real vein of gold where if we could do something about it, and I honestly can't see how you do it effectively, that would have an enormous effect on teams, knowing the moment to take someone out of a project. Let's say th- This one for me has been unsatisfying. But even then, that is the point of this podcast, which is, I don't think we ever claim to have all the answers. But the more we think about it, the better. And I think, tying some of these together and giving historical parallel has been fantastic. So Mary, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, Come for the Second World War history, stay for the less resilience and, and working and managing stress. Really fantastic. Just ran off as always, we would love to hear your feedback and in this particular case if anyone knows how to effectively measure stress in the workplace uh, we would <laughs> I would love to hear from you from myself but also just in terms of, of an episode. But more generally, um, we are very lucky we get to meet some fantastic guests and people to talk about topics. You probably have a topic we haven't thought about, so please let us know. We are on the platform formerly known as Twitter at Battling with Biz with a Z. We are available on uh, email for old people, as more and more people seem to be saying, although I get loads of blooming emails each day battlingwithbusiness2s at gmail.com and we've resisted it for the first 35 episodes but like and subscribe I believe the young people are saying so if this is your first time listening to us uh, please do subscribe there's a a massive back catalogue so that when myself or Gareth say on a previous episode we have discussed you can find out what we've discussed other than that though uh, it only remains for me to say Mary thank you so much for joining us Uh, And Gareth, as always a pleasure to have you outdo my stories with stories of combat tours in Afghanistan. So thank you very much.